Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Schechter. Whatever happens in the next few months, it's fair to say that business will change. Sadly, some businesses will not make it through. Others will struggle to come back. And in some cases, innovation will prevail. That is, new problems will result in new business opportunities. Disruption, innovation, and the desire and will to succeed will drive entrepreneurs to imagine whole new companies, new startups. Some will be wildly successful, and some may even become household names. It makes you wonder, is there a formula for startup success? Are there rules or at least a framework? That's what we're going to talk about today with my guest, Jim McKelvey. Jim McKelvey is a serial entrepreneur, an inventor, and philanthropist, and an artist. He is the co-founder of Square and founded Invisibly, an ambitious project to rewire the economics of online content. He is the deputy chair of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. And most recently, he's written The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business One Crazy Idea at a Time. It is my pleasure to welcome Jim McKelvey to the program. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Jeff, and what a crazy time we're in. Indeed it is. Let's begin by defining, explain to our listeners what an innovation stack is. So an innovation stack is a reaction to a harsh environment. Um, And what I mean by that is entrepreneurship, which I define as doing something that's never been done before, as opposed to just business, which you can copy, hopefully, from somebody who's been successful before. But entrepreneurship, where you're inventing, uh, is a really messy process. And it is not a linear process. It's not, there are no guarantees. But um, what happens is that the process of innovation is not one or two little things. It is a series of little things that interact with each other and eventually be called this thing that I call an innovation stack. And my insight here was uh, to try to answer a question at Square, which was how did we survive an attack by Amazon? So Amazon, when we were a three- or four-year-old company, copied our product, undercut our price, and was going to kill us because they always win when they do this to a startup. Uh, And somehow they didn't win. And uh, I was happy we survived, but I had to wrestle with the question of was it just luck? And it turns out it wasn't just luck. It turns out that we had this thing. I didn't know what to call it at the time, but we had an innovation stack, and it protected Square as a startup from Amazon. And as I looked throughout history, I saw, wait a second, other companies have done exactly the same thing. And it's a very powerful thing, uh, but it's messy, and it's something we don't normally talk about uh, for a bunch of reasons. And the decisions that you made, the innovations, the decisions that you stacked one on top of the other, how many of those were conscious and how many of those were simply reactive and you made the right choice? Well, most of them were reactive and conscious. So we we would confront a problem. We would say, wow, can we find somebody else that solved this problem before us? And sometimes we could and we'd copy their solution. But often we couldn't and we'd have to invent our own new solution. Well, inventing a new solution frequently caused multiple new problems. So we would end up you know, solving one problem and then creating two more. And so this process continued until event- eventually I counted 14 things that Square did that were completely unique uh, to the credit card world at the time. And that 
stack of 14 things. The, the, the stack reacted with itself. It was this crazy, messy process, but ultimately it produced this thing that was uh, what protected our company and allowed us to have massive growth. If you reverse engineered it, could you find those things that were really essential? If one of them had changed or two of them had changed or three of them had changed, would it have gone differently? Uh, almost certainly it would have, but we don't know. Um, one of the things about innovation stacks is they, they evolve organically in real time with a changing environment. So as Square began its uh, processing, uh, the laws changed. The rules of credit card processing changed. Uh, we changed some of them. Uh, others were changed by our competitors reacting to us. So these are very dynamic environments. So you just can't go back in some sort of like laboratory setting and uh, perform precise experiments. And it's very frustrating to me because I at my core and I'm a scientist. I mean, I was raised by a by a scientist, and I believe in the scientific method, and I'd love to be able to do a study of this. Uh, at best, what I was able to do was uh, sort of mine history for a bunch of examples of similar situations, but it's, uh, it's not a laboratory experiment. Which means that it requires a particular skill set to work in that realm of the unknown, that entrepreneurial skill set. Talk about that. So the entrepreneurial skill set is the ability to proceed even in the case of uncertainty. And so what I see happen to many of my super qualified and super competent friends is they'll encounter a new problem. And I believe they have the ability to do something about that problem, but they hesitate because they feel unqualified. And what I try to say to them is, look, of course you're unqualified. By definition, if no human on the planet has ever solved the problem that you're attempting to solve, you can't be qualified and nobody can be qualified. So the analogy I use is uh, flying an airplane. Like today, if you want to fly an airplane, go get qualified. There's a course for that. You can get a medical and FAA training and take tests and then be qualified to fly. But the Wright, brother, the Wright brothers couldn't be qualified because nobody had ever flown a plane before, but they still did it. So what I wanted to do in the book was reach out to the millions of people that have the potential to solve problems, even though technically they're unqualified. And what I found is that throughout history, some of the greatest businesses in the world have been started by people who were absolutely not qualified to do what they did. Which really raises an interesting question now because some of the, the, the business crises that, that a lot of companies, large and small, are going to be facing over the next year or so really is uncharted territory. It's absolutely uncharted, and it's, it's a perfect example of one of these environments because uh, at least two of the people that I profile in the book uh, were thrown into situations that they didn't want to be in. They would much rather have been in a safe business where everything was known and it was a, almost a guaranteed outcome, and, and, and the, fate of hand, the hand of fate threw them into this chaotic world where they had to just scramble for their survival, and, and you wouldn't want people to do that, but sometimes you don't get to control the hand of fate, and it is about to hurl millions of us into that world, and it's a scary world, um, but there are different techniques that work in that world, and I wanted to share some of them. Talk a little bit about what some of those techniques are. Uh, well, the first is speed. The greatest, uh, the greatest advantage that small companies have doing things that have not been done is the speed at which they can iterate, and uh, it, it doesn't seem like much of an advantage. The, 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 the big companies have established processes and supply chains and all sorts of things that, that they can depend on, uh, and they have 
you know, people who know what their jobs are. Uh, startups and small companies have none of that in a chaotic environment. Um, but what they do have is the ability to iterate very quickly, which means you try something, you see if it works. If it doesn't work, you can adapt very quickly. And at Square, we were literally changing our product on a daily basis, both hardware and software, um, as we came up with stuff that didn't work, looked and saw why it didn't work, and then quickly adapted to it. So speed, among all other weapons, is probably your greatest p- power. What about the idea of just feeling you have to act? Because one of the things you talk about is sometimes doing nothing or waiting is also a good idea. Yeah. So it turns out that in some cases, uh, inaction is the appropriate action. Uh, So when Amazon copied Square, we looked at everything we could do, including matching Amazon's price, which was way lower than our price was, and we decided to do none of it. We, and we, we thought we had good reasons for that, but we weren't sure. Again, we had no, we had no peers to copy. We just had to make a, make a, a, a gut call. Um, but uh, it worked, and we're here today, and that was partially because of our inaction. But th- that was not paralytic inaction. That wasn't we're afraid to do anything, and therefore we do nothing. It was we looked at what we could do, couldn't figure out a way to – uh, make, you know, make sense of, 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 of doing anything differently. So we chose to do nothing. Um, so sometimes inaction, in fact, can be <laughs> the best action. In that particular situation, how did the inaction accrue to your advantage? Well, in that case, uh, miraculously, Amazon, who was copying our product and undercutting our price, competed with, competed with us for a little over a year, and, and then they quit. And this was amazing. They just gave up. And at the end, they did. I got I to gotta say something cool <laughs> about Amazon. Uh, they mailed all of their former customers, one of our Square readers. When they got out of the credit card processing business, they gave all of their former merchants uh, one of our products. They just said, here, we're out, use Square, which I thought was a really cool way of them sort of leaving the market. So um, I'm, I'm proud to say that my book is sold on Amazon, and we're kind of friends now because I thought they, they you know, when they – when they gave up, they gave up in a very sort of admirable way. Um, but, you know, it, 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 was, it was absolutely terrifying. And uh, you, you don't know what it's like to compete with Amazon because uh, it, it chills you to the bone. But, but we, we really had uh, a situation where we had this thing called an innovation stack, which protected Square. And Amazon was not able to replicate it. Innovation stacks are messy. They are, there's no checklist in the book. Like you're not going to, I'm not going to, you know, you're not going to turn to page 87 and get the secret of how to <laughs> do it. Like it's, it's, I, I, all I do is I describe the mess. I explain what it's like for everybody else. But if you can live through it, you end up with this thing, this insanely powerful. And the, the example of that power that I give is it protected a little startup from Amazon, which is the most deadly predator uh, competitor on the market. <laughs> and it works. How did you win? What, why did they back away? So I don't know exactly what happened at Amazon uh, because they you know, didn't tell us. Uh, but uh, what I did was I found this pattern that throughout history had protected these other companies. And the patterns is always the same, which is that the, these, these startups evolve innovation stacks. And once that innovation stack is together, it is almost impossible to attack so Amazon was not a great example um, because I didn't have insight into Amazon, but I was able to interview Herb Kelleher, who was the founder of Southwest Airlines, and he was actually one of the 
inspiring voices that asked me to write the book. And, and Herb validated all these assumptions that I'd made and told me stories about how Southwest had survived tax attacks from all the major airlines, including, um, you know, the, the best, which was United, the second largest carrier at the time, um, should have been able to copy Southwest. Um, they launched a competing airline called TED. I don't know if you remember TED, but uh, the joke was TED stand for the end of United, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, you know, or United without you and I on board. It also stood for that. But the, the point is, TED was this multi-million dollar failure, and it shouldn't have been. United was the biggest airline in the country, should have been easily able to copy this little startup, but they couldn't because Southwest had an innovation stack and United couldn't handle it. Talk a little bit about at what point you realized that you had a competitive advantage against Amazon, or did you? We, we never realized it. So we went through the whole competition with Amazon, uh, literally terrified uh, and, and expecting any day to get wiped out. Um, and miraculously, we didn't find out until they announced uh, on Halloween of 2015 that they were getting out of our business. Um, so it was really a terrifying time. And it's actually another thing that I discuss in the book is that a lot of times if you are used to being in a world where you have known inputs and everything is pretty much predictable, uh, you're going to be extremely uncomfortable in an entrepreneurial world. And I describe what that discomfort is like. And um, I mean, unfortunately, Jeff, I think a lot of people in the next year are going to are going to be thrown into that world because like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I have, I mean, I, I, I sit on the Federal Reserve. Like I get to hear the, 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 the best economists in the world talking about, this. we don't know. We don't know. I, I see Square. I see our data from the, from the poor merchants who are getting their businesses decimated or in some cases wiped out. Like we don't know. And, and imagine how terrifying that is. It's, it's, and and, and you're, you're in this world, and you're going to say, please tell me what to do. Please give me information, and, and nobody can do that. But but it is also possible to survive and, and even in some cases to thrive in that environment. Talk about the entrepreneurial mindset and what it really is, because I think a lot of people consider themselves entrepreneurial, but they're really not. So I, I had to use an archaic definition of the word entrepreneur in order to write this book because I need to differentiate business people who are people who found businesses in industries that are known uh, with entrepreneurs who create new industries themselves. So an uh, example, I use coffee shops. Uh, one of my friends, Howard Lerner, started a very successful string of coffee shops. He made millions of dollars. He's super successful. And Howard made coffee shops. Now, guess what? Coffee shops have been around for hundreds of years. That is a known business. And Howard, when he was starting, could go copy what other coffee shops are doing. Now, he adapted it a little bit, but it was basically a known business. Um, what we did at Square and what the companies that I profiled did were building completely new industries. And that's a different sort of behavior. And it has no word in the English language to describe it, but it used to. It turns out the original use of the word entrepreneur, which was popularized by the economist Joseph Schumpeter, was used to describe people who were not doing normal businesses. They were doing these things that hadn't been done before. So I had to use this 100-year-old definition of entrepreneur in order to describe the sort of people that I needed to describe. So I, I, I and I'm not taking any way 
anything from somebody who's a business person. Like if you're, you know, you're starting a, a company that's uh, building software as a service, guess what? That's been done before. You can copy the tools and techniques and processes and valuations and all that stuff. That's a really smart way to make a lot of money. That's a, that's actually a better way to make money than being an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs take a lot of risk. They are bad investments typically. <laughs> um, but when they do succeed, they end up usually creating whole new industries and sometimes changing the world. Talk about what happens, and there have been so many attempts at this, and usually they fail, when entrepreneurs or the entrepreneurial mindset is brought into an existing legacy company. Well, I mean, sometimes it works beautifully. Uh, the, the classic example is of, you know, Jobs' return to Apple. Um, uh, and changed Apple from what was a computer company to, uh, I don't know what it is, but they started making phones and musical devices and iTunes and wow, you know? Uh, so sometimes it works spectacularly well. Typically it doesn't. Um, and it doesn't, I, I, I don't know why it doesn't. I'm not an expert in large corporations. Um, I usually, uh, you know, <laughs> have to preface everything I say, but, but if I had to make a guess, my guess would be is that large corporations are, large because they are very good at doing certain processes efficiently. And the way you get efficient as a process is you make it, uh, you systematize it, you refine it, you incrementally improve it, you build process and structure and audits around it. You get really good at that. And that is almost antithetical to a rapidly changing entrepreneurial environment where you're inventing stuff, you're trying it, it doesn't work, you have to quickly adapt. So the two cultures tend to clash, and we see this most in the financial industry because almost by definition, large financial companies are not very nimble, and therefore they end up uh, in some cases falling victim to small innovative companies that are. How many times along the way or how many situations when you reach some of these inflection points in the innovation stack, were were you ready to, to throw in the towel? Well, I mean, stubbornness plays a part, right. <laughs> at least in my life. I, I am uh, so so. I am not bold. I am not fearless, but I am remarkably tenacious. I am probably unreasonably stubborn. And another thing that I noticed in studying these great entrepreneurs throughout history is that stubbornness tends to be. Uh, a, a quality that they shared. And, and look, it doesn't take a lot to be stubborn. It's just an unwillingness to die. Okay. So in the case of Square, we looked at uh, 17, like in the, in the first week of, of being in business, we found 17 laws, rules, and regulations that we were violating with every single transaction. Okay. OFAC, KYC, a bunch of cr- credit card rules. Like we were literally 17 laws and rules. Uh, we were breaking every time we processed a, a payment. And we continued anyway. Now, many people would have said, wow, it's illegal. We have to stop. I turned to Jack on the first day and said, hey, what we're doing is illegal. And he turned to me. It was like, great. Let's keep going. <laughs> you know? and, and Jack and I had that attitude. You know? so, so, I mean, is that stubbornness? Is that uh, delusion? Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's stubbornness. If I mean, I mean, I guess it's tenacity if you succeed. It's stubbornness if you're married to it, and it's delusion if you fail. Right. I mean, it's often referred to as delusion, and, and people talk about, you know, a reality distortion field that, that sometimes goes with the territory. Yeah, and, and you, you can have good ones and bad ones. 
you know, I mean, we look at the, the, the example of WeWork as possibly a bad distortion field. Um, and we can look at the examples of what Steve Jobs did as possibly positive. But again, if, if you're in the process of, of doing something new, guarantees go out the window. And, and this is, uh, Jeff, the, one of the reasons I wrote the book was I have a friend and she is incredibly qualified. She is so competent to do so many things, but I watch her every time she comes across a problem where she doesn't know exactly what the solution is. She stops, she hesitates, and she waits to try to find an expert. And sometimes there is no expert and she gives up. And I say to her, why do you give up? Because you're so competent, you're so smart and hardworking. Like she has a skill set that I think could solve this problem, but she's been raised her entire life to worship expertise, as we all have. I mean, we're all taught, don't do something if you're not qualified to do it. I mean, and, and, and I think, though, that there are millions of people out there who have the skill to do these amazing things but are disqualifying themselves because they feel unqualified. And here's my message to them, and it's, it's not an entirely positive message because my message to them is you are unqualified. Guess what? Nobody is qualified to do something truly new. If no human has done it before, then nobody's qualified. So, I mean, the Wright brothers were not qualified to fly the first airplane because at the time, nobody had flown an airplane in human history. Do you think that this has been ever thus for startups and within this framework, or is this something that is a more modern construct? It's an excellent question, and it is not a modern construct. It's something that I think we talk about now more because startup culture is a little more popular than it was uh, years ago. So, so when the word entrepreneur was first used, it was sort of an insult, which is why I use the word crazy in the title of the book, you know, crazy ideas, um, because crazy is not completely a compliment anymore. But um, the pattern has been there throughout history. And, and frankly, when Jack and I started Square, uh, entrepreneurship was not as cool as it is now. This was 2008, 2009. We're in the depths of a recession. Everyone was freaked out about the housing bubble collapse and their stock markets, you know, stock portfolios were in tatters and people were terrified and uh, it wasn't cool. And, and, you know, entrepreneurship has sort of become cool, but um, throughout history, it has been uncool for good reason. And it only becomes cool in hindsight. So, yeah, it's cool to build a business that changes the world and get rich and powerful and all this stuff. And, and, but, it, but while you're doing it, uh, at least the historical examples that I studied, all the people were ostracized. Some in, in some cases were kicked out of their home countries. Like that's how bad it can be for entrepreneurs. Do you see a, a whole new wave? We talked about this a little bit, a, sort of a new wave of entrepreneurs that will, will emerge out of the crisis that we're currently in? I, I do, and, and not because I'm some you know, optimist that sits there and says, hey, everything's going to be better. No, I mean, what you're talking about is a crisis. You're talking about people, first of all, many people are going to die. Many people are going to lose loved ones and, and be torn apart. This is a horrible situation that we are about to go into, and that's a terrible, terrible time. And yet from that will emerge a lot of chaos, and that chaos is the thing 
that generates these innovation stacks. Like if I, the, the process that I des- describe in the book is one of chaos. And I don't wish chaos on anybody. And as a matter of fact, I, I confess in the book how little I enjoy uh, doing some of the stuff that I've done and how terrified I was in doing it. And yet, once you are in that situation that is chaotic, whether you choose to be or not, uh, a different set of rules apply and you can't survive. So yes, there will be great fortunes, uh, great successes uh, created from the current chaos. And what I hope is that the people who are fortunate enough to come out the other side, maybe even better off than if this crisis hadn't happened, will not be so arrogant as to think that they're all geniuses and uh, fearless leaders, uh, that they will be humble and say, hey, look, uh, I, I was put in a terrible situation. Uh, I did these things to survive, and they happened to work. But don't believe for a second that, uh, that I knew what was happening at the, at, at the time. And, 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 you know, that's my story. Like, yeah, Square, Square was successful. A lot of the stuff that I've done has been very successful. I didn't know it was going to be successful. And I was terrified. Many, many days, I was terrified. And, and the, the other entrepreneurs I studied, same thing. They were all scared. Jim McKelvey, his book is The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business Over One Crazy Idea at a Time. Jim, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, thank you so much. This is uh, a crazy time that we're going into, and um, I very much appreciate your time today. Thank you.